Oh, that sounds good. I love the sound of fellowship in the morning. Wonderful. Our scripture reading is from Matthew 6. It's the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the same passage that we were assigned last week. So apparently we need to hear it again. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? But why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sometimes preachers are accused, and rightly so quite often, <laughs> of preaching a verse out of context. That is, taking a verse that's in a particular passage of Scripture and taking it out of the context and just letting the verse kind of stand there on its own two legs and preach that verse. Which means, of course, that the interpretation of that verse might be just slightly skewed. In fact, it may not have anything to do with the context. If there is a contextualized verse anywhere in the scriptures, it is this particular one that I'm going to talk about this morning. And that is verse 33. Verse 33 of that passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all of these things? All of these things are the things that we've been talking about all along. We talk about the Lord trying to impress upon his disciples who were the primary audience for this particular sermon. And he is teaching them about the number one priority of their life. And that is the kingdom of God. He would later teach and preach a num number of parables related to the kingdom of God. He would have statements about the kingdom of God all throughout his entire life. And his beginning preaching would echo that of John the Baptist in saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The whole scope of what Christ came to have us understand and enter into and participate and become a part of for all eternity is the kingdom of God. And so he's told us where our treasures should be. 
We should seek those things that are above. We should have our treasure in heaven, for that's where our treasure is. That's where our heart will be also. He has told us about having a proper perspective about the eye being the light of the soul that gives us the focus of what we are attending to. He has talked to us about no man can serve two masters. Once again, bringing us to that place to where we are finding what our true master, our true reason for being should be. And then he launches into this very long passage, which we looked at just about word for word last week on being anxious. Don't be anxious about food. Don't be anxious about drink. Don't be anxious about clothing. And the key thing we noted there as we concluded was three times in this passage, he uses the term heavenly father. Christ is not only bringing us into the kingdom, but he is introducing us to the Lord God Almighty, his father and ours. God the Father is a heavenly father. It's easy in the Old Testament to see God as high and lifted up and exalted in all the great passages and of monotheism of the great one God, the Israel, uh, God's um, people, Israel and their God and how he has brought them together in covenant. But Jesus now comes to extend that. And we read even last week the passages that speak of God the Father in the Old Testament. What kind of God he is, especially in his dealing with the nation of Israel in the Exodus. So all of this has been set up that Jesus might sort of spearhead with one succinct statement in this particular verse, beginning with the contrasting conjunction, but all these other things... Your heavenly father knows you need them. They're necessities. He's got it covered. You need to trust him. Oh, you have little faith. Need to pray one simple prayer. Oh, Lord, increase my faith. Enable me and cause me to believe in you and trust in you in those times when I do not trust other things, but to trust you implicitly and continually. So he's, he's given us everything we need to know, but then this comes down to a statement which is an imperative. This is something he really expects us as his, his children, as his disciples to do. And, and I just want to briefly kind of outline it. it. It won't be anything new to you this morning. Uh, I'm not preaching so much to your head. I know you know this stuff. I'm preaching to your heart. I'm just concerned if you're like me, you've become a little hard little cold, a little backslidden, and a little bit indifferent. And when you add all that up, you have a pretty poor disciple. You have someone that's not following too close. You have someone that's not obeying too readily. You have someone really that is walking alone. You have someone that's straying. And we do that as Christians. I don't expect an amen, but I would expect a nod of the head slightly if you concur that that's what we need. We need that hear, that definite, clear call from the voice of our Lord himself calling us to that one thing, that one treasure, that one master, that one focus of our faith. And that, of course, is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word for seek there is a very rich one, and it's a very common one that's used in the scripture. And it speaks of to look for, to seek, 
to look for, to desire. You know, there was a, a setting of affection upon something. And it also, interestingly, uh, has the idea in it of, of um, inquiring. It's, a, it's a, an intellectual seeking. It's a seeking to understand, a seeking to know, a seeking to arrive at, at some place, a seeking to move from point A to point B. In other words, it is an active interrogation. It is an a, 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 a interrogation that has some angst to it in the sense that you've just got to know. And so he wants us to do that with respect to the kingdom of God. He wants us to inquire after it, to ask questions about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? What is it? Uh, where is it? Uh, who, who is it? Uh, what's its nature? What's its future? And inquire into that. That's seeking after the kingdom of God. And as you may know, there's always been throughout church history a great debate, a lot of insight, and, and sometimes uh, hindsight, and sometimes dim uh, views of the kingdom of God and confusing views to the kingdom of God. But we're to, we're to seek, uh, not just in finding in one place, but to find across a whole array of the revelation of God, going back to the earliest days of Genesis all the way through to the final days of the, of the age in which we live, just before the last day. So we're to be looking to those things. But it also has, this idea of seek also has in it one other thing that I would have never known, uh, but I just at the last minute uh, pulled out old Kittle. <laughs> In fact, this time I had little Kittle because that's what I have right next to my uh, chair where I sit and read and study. And uh, so I looked at it, and in this, this idea of seeking, in this word, there's the notion of uh, looking after something, looking after something, as in a stewardship. In other words, having charge of something, caretaking, caregiving to something. And so that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God. It's an anxious and a, and a uh, in fact, there is used in one context, the word lustful. Lustful is not always a bad word. It can mean a sincere desire and a voracious desire. So that's what seeking the kingdom of God is about. It's something that takes our mind and our heart and our intellect. It takes our, our, our willingness to step out and our willingness to invest faith in understanding and seeking the kingdom of God. And the word first in this, it's a word that's used often. And of course, it's, a, it's an ordinal number. It means one, of course. But more importantly, it usually means a foremost, at first in time, that which has a rank of number one, that which takes priority. One commentator said it better than anybody. He said, above all else. What else? Well, looking for clothing, looking for food, looking for what you're going to, to eat and what you're going to, how you're going to take care of yourself. Above all that, first, first in priority, first in rank, and above all else, seek the kingdom of God. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of God for just a moment. When Jesus came preaching, he preached, as John the Baptist had before, as we mentioned, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ actually came in his first advent to inaugurate, to commence the kingdom of God on earth among his people. 
And if the kingdom of God was started, it was not offered and rejected by some errant theology that many of us have been taught. And therefore, God gave up on the kingdom of God and started with some brand new thing called the church. And the kingdom has been postponed. And we're now in the church age. And the church age will end with a particular event, that is a pre-tribulation secret rapture. And then we'll go, the Lord will go back then to dealing with Israel and the kingdom. And there will be a tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And then there will be a thousand-year millennial reign. And then there will be another return of Christ that will inaugurate then the last day, the end of time, the beginning of eternity, and all the way through eternity in the new heavens, the new earth. Did you catch all that? Did I survey the Schofield notes about right? Now, having heard that, forget it. Oh, I'm serious as a heart attack. One of the worst things in our whole culture, Christian culture in Dallas, Texas, and around the world, is this notion of that's how God operated, that he has two peoples of God, that there's the Jews, but that didn't go well, so he set them aside and delayed it, and then he brings in this whole new group, the Christians and their Gentiles, and it's a different thing, and then that's going to be up, and then God's going to return to his program with Israel. He's going to have the tribulation of Israel, the great time of Jacob, so the return to the land, and all of that sort of thing, and, and you, know the, you know the scheme. And the reason I ask you to forget it is not to be funny, except just it's confusing, and, and most of the questions that I receive about the kingdom of God and the flow of, of God's history, holy history, redemptive history, is usually people are asking the question based on premises that are from that particular scheme of interpretation. The biblical scheme is much more simple, much more straightforward, and solid and consistent throughout all of Scripture. Most of what you'll ever find in the scriptures is one. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one God. There's one covenant of grace. There's one people of God. There's one way that God does things, and it's the right way. And God will accomplish all of his purposes. And that's what Jesus came. He came in the plan of God right down to the very moment, the very minute of the fullness of time, and commenced the work that would bring about the kingdom of God. And the king, that's what the kingdom of God looked like at that time. It looked different in David's day. It looked different in Hezekiah's day. It looked a whole lot different in Abraham's day and different still again in Noah's day. But the kingdom of God is the righteous rule of God over all the earth. Now, some have asked, okay, what about the church? The church is the called out ones. It's that calling out from both Jew and Gentile, all the peoples of God, the elect of all ages by whom God calls them by his spirit and regenerates them and brings them in and gives them citizenship in his kingdom by new birth and by adoption and does that great work in them whereby he justifies all their character and purges and cleanses and based upon the merits of what Christ accomplished in his righteousness. And that's what the text is talking about. So to understand the kingdom of God, you go straight to the king. If you want to understand the kingdom of God, understand something about the king. The king, Jesus himself, is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. He that hath the king hath the kingdom. 
That is the way God wants us to look. So what's this? Jesus is doing something here that many have said he never did in his lifetime. He never claimed to be certain things. Well, he's calling upon all to recognize him immediately as the king because he says, seek diligently as a stewardship and as a responsible quest the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. The righteousness of God is manifested in Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's an apocalypse. It's a pulling back of the curtain in the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1. If you want to know something about the features and the nature of the kingdom of God, look to the gospel. What is the gospel all about? It's about fallen people, sinful people, who need desperately to be brought to spiritual life, who need to have their sins forgiven, who need to be justified in the sight of God. By the word justify and righteous often are interchangeable. It's the same root word in the text, and it's, it's translated in English much like uh, belief in faith is the same root word in the text, and depending on whether uh, you're using a, a noun form or verbal form or whatever uh, in the translation. Righteousness, justice, justify are all part of the same family of meaning and this is what God does in the work of Christ Christ comes and in his life he perfectly obeys the will of God and thereby acquires for himself by works salvation is by works y'all the works of Christ in his active obedience to the law of God and he earned that. The covenant said, if you do this, you shall live. He did it. And he lived. He was raised from the dead. But not before he had offered himself in the place of unrighteous, unjust, lost sinners. So he comes in terms of God's covenant that was established in the Old Testament with his people. And he earns the blessing. But then he also, in his life, bears the curse. The law had blessing and cursing, and Jesus took care of both of them. In his death, he bore the curse, the curse of the law for each and every one of us, in our place, substitutionary, fully finished, efficacious, gets the job done, nothing needs to be added to it. It's by grace alone and by the provision of God in Christ that's how the kingdom of God commences, is that Christ inaugurates it with his life and his death. And now there is a way in which people can come into the kingdom and they come by, by faith. He said this kingdom is not of this world. He said the kingdom of God is among you. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is entered into by new birth. He told his little group of followers, little flock. I love that phrase. It comes out of Ezekiel, by the way. That's the way God refers to his chosen people, the remnant, the survivors, those that, that make it through, those that actually return. The return of Israel is a return to God. That's what the word repent means, turn. Turn. 
They come by way of repentance and faith. And he said, little flock, don't you know it's the Father's will? You want to know what the will of God is? It's the Father's will to give you the king, to give you the kingdom. We don't conjure it up. We don't shape it. We don't do all these things that we say we do to the kingdom, build the kingdom, extend the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's mighty sovereign work in his people. And he, he calls us. He places us in. He gives us the kingdom. And it's the righteous rule of God over all the earth. God is the king of all and his vice regent Christ himself at his right hand reigns until all enemies are subdued. The kingdom of God is going at full blast, full operation right this minute. All throughout earth, God's will is being done by his sovereignty. This is not what the kingdom will look like during the eternal state, just like this is not what the kingdom looked like in the days of Abraham or the days of David or the days of Hezekiah or the days of Daniel and Ezekiel and all the rest. But it's the same kingdom. It's of the same sort and the same seed. It's the work of God. It's what God is doing. And he is building and, and reigning over all and especially over his people. You hear sometimes there's two kingdoms. Well, how many kings are there? There's one king. I'd like to submit there's one kingdom. That which poses as a, as a rival kingdom is no kingdom at all. It's a usurper, and it's an alien force in God's world. And Christ dealt with that upon the cross when he crushed the head of the serpent. And it's just a matter of time before the serpent stops wiggling. It's just a matter of time in God's determinate counsel that he will bring it all to an end. That's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation has these great truths of the gospel, the coming of Christ, the survival of the woman, the coming of the seed, the victorious conquest, the wars, all the things that happen in history, the famine, the wars, the pestilence, all of these great woes that come upon, all these operations, the preaching of the gospel, the bearing of witness, the martyrdom of the believers and the saints, the worship of God in heaven going on concurrent with the battle on earth and how God brings it all to consummation and brings it all into a new dimension in eternity. Christ will come again in power and glory with all of his saints and he will set all things right. All the dead will be raised. The righteous to everlasting life. The wicked to everlasting punishment. They'll be judged. Everything will set, be set right. That's the righteousness of God. You know what the root idea of righteousness is? Right. <laughs> That's a hard one. It means make it right. And making it right means it's plumb with the nature of God. It is squared away to the character of God. That which is in perfect alignment with God's character is that which is right and righteous. And Jesus has come to take a creation that was created in God's image but now has been marred by sin and disobedience. 
And he's going to make it once again, shape it up like it ought to be. That's why in the Old Testament you would often see people with a plumb line and a measuring rod. Those were terms of getting a building perfectly straightened up. And that's what God's doing with the temple. Who's the temple? His people. What? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that his spirit dwells within us? That's what God is doing in his righteous rule. And then let me close real quickly where Jesus just encourages us to enter. He talks about it being a constricted gate and a narrow road. It's a rough road. It's not an easy road. And there'll be, there are few that find it. And there are few that walk the road. And yet the gracious invitation is there. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The call goes out to all, but only those with ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, find the constricted, the narrow gate and the narrow road. How about you this morning? Are you in a quest? Do you have a priority? Is that quest the kingdom of God? Is that the priority in your life? You're trying to, whatever all this other stuff means, let me get this one thing right. Because this matters for all eternity. What we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, what kind of clothes we're going to wear, that doesn't matter very long at all. In fact, for some of us, our clothes doesn't last but one season. And then we give them to Genesis or the Goodwill or whatever, sell them on consignment. If there's anything that passes away, it's everything in this world most important thing is what do you do with the kingdom of God and his king?